Hello everyone. We're trying something slightly different today. Normally when I do these things, I either have a series of notes I'm going off of, or, uh, well, that's usually actually it, is a series of notes I'm going off of. But in this case, I don't. This is partially a challenge to myself, but also partially because I just finished Kingdom Hearts 2 not too awful long ago, and for various other reasons I'll get into in just a moment. Now, before I really go any further, I do want to say something rather specifically to all of you in general. There are very few games I start my rumination with this message that I'm about to give you, but this is, in my opinion, deserving of being one of those, and that is the message that you should go and play this game. <laughs> now, let me let me explain that just a little bit. This is not in the, no, really, this is one of the best games of all time list. Uh, this Well, okay, I guess it is, depending on how you define that. This is not a Final Fantasy VI, is what I'm trying to say, but this is a Paper Mario 2. Uh, I call this the top 20, for example. Uh, anybody who's watched my stream knows about the top 20 and what that has to do with. So, in all and genuine sincerity, despite the flaws of this game, and there are flaws, there are problems with it, this is a game that I do think most people who have an interest in this type of game would enjoy, and because of its relative ease of access, because it's on the PS2, uh, due to the, the fact that it's relatively easy to get a hold of price-wise and without any real difficulty, due to the gameplay, due to the story, due to the way the two integrate, due to the side games, due to the, uh, excuse me, the aesthetic appeal, and due to the replayability, and a few other reasons. Yes, I really do recommend you go out and play and enjoy this game. Um, now, as usual, the rule is that spoilers cannot extend past this game for these ruminations. That includes the comments as well. This is the game that is most going to suffer for that for that ruling, but I, I stand by it, and for various reasons, not the least of which being the fact that 2 really is the jumping board, uh, or actually more accurately, the dive within the series, because after this, the next three games basically spend their time explaining everything that was that happened within 2 and within Recom or Com. So, but you really can't appreciate it, in my opinion, uh, appropriately enough if you have not already played two and then go and either watch or play the other games. Uh, one other thing I will also note is, of the series, I know some people... Uh, I've mentioned before the problem with Kingdom Hearts being on so many different platforms that it reaches a point where it's kind of silly, and being able to play everything requires a bare minimum of having uh, four systems, and that's if you get the right versions of the right types and blah blah blah. So... I know some people basically only want to play the PS2 games, and that's fine. Uh, but of the series, if there's going to be a game you're going to play rather than watch, this is one I do think you should play rather than watch. There's a caveat on that, but I'll talk about that when I get past the spoiler section. It, it has to do with the final mix, and that's all I'm going to say about that now. Now, one other um, interesting thing about this game uh, is that this Kingdom Hearts 2 is one of the games that was requested for me to stream via donation, and I do in fact intend to. Which left me in an awkward position, because I'm I, I literally it was the next game up on the slot to do a rumination of, and so I decided that the way I'm going to do this is uh, when I do this video right now, the one I'm doing as of this very moment, this is going to be pretending that the future games don't exist, basically. I, I have sectioned off all the information that I learn in the future about this series over there, and I'm going to be ignoring it to the greatest extent of my ability throughout the course of this rumination and just be focusing on Kingdom Hearts 2, keeping in mind what we already know about 1 and Recom, okay? When I do the stream, 
uh, when I'm actually playing through the game live with uh, everybody, it's going to be completely spoilers ahoy everywhere, and I'm going to be talking about it within context of the entire series, having seen and played the rest of the series, if that makes any sense. So, just thought I'd lay that out there for you guys. Now, as usual, I want to start with the gameplay, combat mechanics, that sort of thing, really talk about how it is to play Kingdom Hearts 2. And I have heard many people say that Kingdom Hearts 2 of the, of the games they've played within the series is the most fun to play, and it's a hard argument to, to disagree with. Picture everything that, for example, I liked, and many people I know liked, about the Secret of Mana style of combat from Kingdom Hearts 1. Remove the awkwardness of the jumping mechanics and the slightly uh, uneven um, collision detection, which I mentioned back in my Kingdom Hearts 1 video. Remove the stalling mechanic where you couldn't interrupt your own animations, so you can actually do that. That allows you to have more reaction and more capacity to move or do what you want with your own combos or moves or dodging or whatever. Add into it an innate ability to actually hit a button to when when you're stunned in in a in a knockback the uh, animation to pop out of that and indeed later on you actually get one that also enables you to do a knock uh, do a hot spin out of it which is also an attack which is rather nice and overall you get a system which works way way better. Uh, apologies, my nose is rebelling against me again today. Actually, that's just pure allergies is all it is. I took a loratadine this time, uh, about a half an hour before I started the video, so hopefully... Oh, that'll help. My point I'm trying to get to here is that everything that I liked about the combat from Kingdom Hearts 1 was streamlined, uh, made more smooth. Uh, the processing of it, uh, both on this end and on the actual gameplay end, was enhanced to the point where it's smooth to the point where you almost don't even notice the uh, any stuttering or jittering or there's no uh, there's no concrete level of it as I like to call the concrete overshoes you never feel like you're you're stumbling around like in some games you know it's just and um they added a surprisingly large amount of abilities which enable you to uh, and by abilities I mean the equipable uh passive abilities which enable you to customize your combat set. I mean, for God's sakes, the most common thing I've seen for people who are trying to do the hard stuff is a setup with a specific weapon, the Fenrir, I believe, and with all these things that actually re reduce your amount of combos because they added a mechanic where many bosses could only be killed with a finishing blow. Like, you could have them at 1 HP for forever, but until you get that finishing blow off, they don't die. But on top of that, the finishing blow does a fairly large amount of damage, and there's abilities you can do to increase the damage of said finishing blow as well. So, literally the idea of just swinging once and then doing the finishing blow, I believe there's actually a way in the final mix to get it to just the finishing blow as every swing. I'm not 100% sure on that. But you get the idea. And of course, if you want to play a mage, well, that's theoretically possible. I'll talk about this more a little bit in 358 for reasons that will become obvious when I get there. You don't actually play a mage so much as you play a mage melee hybrid which is actually really cool, all things considered, and works surprisingly well, considering how smoothly you can go back and forth from casting to melee. And they changed the way mana works, too. The way it works now is you have your mana bar. If you use any mana regaining abilities or items, it just re it just refills your mana, shakong. And when you run out, you just regain it slowly, right? It just regenerates, and at, during that period, you have no mana. You know, it's in the yellow or whatever. Damn it, I am so sorry. It slowly regains, and, t and there are, of course, certain things you can do, like uh, getting hits or whatever, which enable it to regain faster. And again, there's abilities you can equip to do that as well, and keyblades you can equip, and equipment you can equip. 
my point I'm trying to get to here is imagine everything in Kingdom Hearts 1's combat, leveling system, mechanics, etc., and better. And that is Kingdom Hearts 2. Which is, as I've said many times, exact, uh, one of the two things a sequel should be. So, definite props there to the, to the team. But there's one other thing I want to talk about with regards to the combat mechanics specifically. Uh, two other things, actually. One's a positive and one's a negative. Let, let's go over the positive first. They, a definite effort was made in Kingdom Hearts 2 um, to really show the money that was being put into the series at this time. I'll talk about this more in a little bit. Um, actually, I'll be talking about this a lot throughout the review, so whatever. But the point is, one of the things they really tried to do was push the PS2 to the limits of its what, it's, what it could do uh, physically, what the hardware could do. But on top of that, they really added a great deal of cool factor to basically everything. I, I feel like there was someone whose entire job was, okay, uh, Bob... I want you to go look at every ability we're adding to this game and make it look cooler. And Bob's like, you got it! And it's true. I mean, just just look at the variants. You know, Fireball, or Fire, or Fire Out, or whatever, in Kingdom Hearts 1 was a Fireball that's sort of homed in, okay? In Kingdom Hearts 2, it's the swirl of flame around you as you run, lunge around. Uh, and you can move while doing it. And, of course, if you do it well in... Uh, wisdom form, or in master form, it's much cooler than that, but I'm not going to get into those just yet. And and that's just one example. Basically, everything you look at it was touched up to basically increase that cool factor. And I like that. That's one of the things I've always liked about the Kingdom Hearts series. I mentioned that uh, uh, several times previously. And Kingdom Hearts 2 probably, in my opinion, succeeds the most out of the entire series in just making you feel cool. Now, I guess I lied. There's actually one other thing I want to talk about. I'm going to segue into that right now. In <laughs> this is sort of a negative, uh, but not really. Um, well, <laughs> this is sort of getting into story stuff, but if you've played up to this point, uh, you probably have some idea of what I'm talking about. So this isn't quite spoilery, but suffice it to say that Kingdom Hearts 2 is easy. Uh, it is, without question, the easiest of the Kingdom Hearts games I've played. I know a lot of people dislike that fact and disagree with that fact, and I can get why, but I personally see it as an overall net positive. And the reason is twofold. One, because it's being done to emphasize the story, the setting, the growth of the characters, rather than just to make the game easier. Yes, it was also done for meta reasons to make the game more accessible. I'm not an idiot. But it was not just done to dumb it down. It was done to emphasize how far Sora has come, how much stronger he is now, and even though we don't fully understand why yet, because I don't know anything about the future series, let's just say that there are several lore reasons why Sora is suddenly much stronger than he was previously, even though from his perspective, nothing's actually happened or changed. Excuse me. Now, the the other thing I like about that, I, I hate to segue into this, but I really got to mention this. I know I've mentioned the story either on my uh, uh, stream or on here on the video sometime before. When I played this game for the very first time, the game was so easy that I literally was not trying at all. Uh, in, in my mind, there's different levels of difficulty, and this was at the absolute bottom. This was like FF8 level difficulty, uh, as I've talked about before, or as I, I prefer to call it nowadays, shoots and ladder difficulty. <laughs> um, excuse me, it's kind of an old joke, but yeah, it was shoots and ladders difficulty. I was just like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
crushing and I was breezing through everything, completely curb stomping everything. Every boss was a joke, every enemy was a joke. Never had to try at all, didn't have to try to level, no grind, no nothing. Now I am not complaining per se, but I want to emphasize the contrast, the extremity of this, which is the point. It was so easy. It was one of the easiest games I'd played in a long time. And then I reached roughly the halfway point of the story. I am so sorry about my nose, guys. Ah, and girls, because I know there's at least some females out there. Oh my goodness. Because I got about to the halfway point, and I'm not going to say anything about what's going on. We're not in the spoiler section yet. But I fought a boss. I bet anyone out there who's played this game can probably guess who that boss is. I know people have on the stream before, because I've, I've mentioned this before. This boss, uh, he was water-based. There's your hint. This boss destroyed me. Now, the contrast is really what I'm trying to emphasize to you here. Imagine going from... <laughs> to... <laughs> Game over. I was so shocked. Because all of a sudden, not only was the boss difficult, but he destroyed me without even blinking. Like, all of a sudden... Uh, the, the game I'd been playing up to that point was what he was now doing against me, so I'm like, okay. Uh, reload, go through the cutscene again, fight him again, and he destroys me again! And I'm like... Because this time I was trying. I was... I loved that fight! I was so into it. I was so energetic, because all of a sudden, not only did I have to try, but for reasons I will describe later, because we're not in the spoiler section, it made sense for the story. And this is one of the greatest strengths of Kingdom Hearts 2 in a nutshell. I've kind of, I've mentioned this before, but so, so, so much of the game, in terms of gameplay, in terms of mechanics, in terms of combat, in terms of difficulty, is in service of the story, story the setting, the characters, the development thereof. And this is a beautiful example of that. All of a sudden, after having demolished everything in my path like I was death itself, I encountered a brick wall that said, no, 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 no. And smashed into my face, and now I had a perfectly fat, flat uh, surface where my face used to be. It was awesome. I loved it. Uh, I've talked about this before with regards to Final Fantasy IV DS, uh, when you fight Golbez in that one section uh, in in the underground. It's almost identical type of, of situation here. It's like, da 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 da. And then there's this boss that should be powerful, ideas, and it was great. So I do actually think it's a net positive, because the whole rest of the game from this point also followed this general uh, process. Now, in some cases, it, there were ways to cheap uh, several of these bosses. Uh, the, uh, well, I'll just say his name, Syx, comes to mind as a good example of that. I've actually refused to do that every time I've played him since. I absolutely refuse to do his reaction command, because it's cheap. Uh, he's actually kind of difficult if you don't use the reaction command at all. It's awesome. It's what it should be, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But overall, the entire game difficulty combat was worked so beautifully to emphasize the point as as a as an interactive storytelling medium. You know, integration, gameplay, and story integration. Now, I just mentioned the reaction cam command, so let's go ahead and talk about that, shall we? The reaction command, in my honest opinion, was not a good thing. Um, the reaction command is effectively a quick time event for all intents and purposes. At certain times with certain enemies, you can do it, uh, trash enemies, regular enemies, you can do a reaction command, you can do this special attack with them. It's always very cool, don't mistake me. It's always something that is basically just there to be cool. There's no real reason to do it. Uh, you're already destroying everything. But, uh, and there are a couple exceptions to this, of course. But the point is, you just do this, you go, and you do some awesome, amazing attack using the enemy, usually, in some manner, or interacting with them in some way. 
to abstractly destroy everything next to you. And virtually all of the bosses have reaction commands too. And in most of the bosses, it's not optional. You basically have to do it. They're not all of them. Obviously, I mentioned Psyx earlier. You don't have to do his reaction command. But most of the bosses, you have to do that in order to progress through the phases of the fight. Now, I say that because I want to emphasize that the reaction command is sort of a quick time event, but it's not actually one. Sometimes it's implemented in a way that I could at least go with in order to get us from point A to point B kind of a thing. And sometimes it's implemented as a uh, put the controller down and watch the game be cool without you thing, also known as Devil May Cry 4 syndrome. Forgive me for going on a small bit of a segue for those of you who are not aware of what I'm talking about. Devil May Cry 3, in my opinion, is one of the best games ever made. It's at the very least in the top 100, possibly in the top 20. It's an amazing game, and one of the best reasons why is because the game required you to be cool, but the game allowed you to be cool. Does that make sense? And if it doesn't, I'll just go over it real quick here. Imagine if you're playing a video game. Now, how many of you out there have had a game where you press A, B, X, square, whatever, Zaby, uh, <laughs> X, A, B, Y, and a cool thing happens, right, because you hit uh, X, A, B, Y. How many of you have played a game where you have to select do cool thing on a menu, and it does a cool thing? How many of you have played a game where it does neither of those? It gives you all four of those buttons which do separate things, and you can decide what they do on your own. It's, in many ways, uh, bridging the gap between RPGs and, of all things, sides, uh, fighting games. This is one of the things Dissidia did as well, and one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much. Because that's really where it's at. In a fighting game, while there are certain mo special moves you can do, overall, the combos you do, the, the attacks you do, the way you do things, are because you hit those buttons in that order. You you did that. You, you follow where I'm going with this? You didn't hit do the upper, you know, triple stun tunlock combo. Uh, I'm not counting Killer Instinct those, by the way. Because <laughs> you could do that in Killer Instinct. But you actually jumped, hit attack, hit low attack here, hit high attack here, and finished with this attack here. You hit every single one of those buttons and made that happen. And you could do it any way you want to, either reactionarily or um, because you felt like looking cooler when you're doing it, right? I like that type of comp that. I like that type of gameplay. So the reaction command, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm still on my segue. Devil May Cry 4 kind of did that, but for the most part tried to reserve all of its really cool action sequences for cutscenes where you just put the controller down and watch your character be very cool. And that's just not very fun for me. It's nice to see something cool going on. Don't mistake me. I'm not saying that's a negative, but all I'm thinking of the whole time is I could be actually doing that right now instead of watching you do it. Kingdom Hearts 2, I had several, several moments where I had that exact same reaction. It's like, why aren't you letting me do this? Why aren't you letting me be awesome? I know you can, because you fixed the combat so well. And indeed, um, this is also going to segue into a positive, but you can actually be cool in Kingdom Hearts 2. I'll talk about that in just a second. So sometimes the reaction command kind of worked, and sometimes it kind of didn't. It was never a fully negative or fully positive, in my personal opinion. It was never something that was awesome, and it was never something that was terrible. The thing I don't like most about it, though, is in most cases, and I, and I already referenced this with Saix, it made given fights or given bosses pathetically easy when they shouldn't have been. or when they And, and indeed, when they are not, when you don't use it. Uh, and I find that to be overall a detriment to the gameplay personally. However, in the interests of fairness, if it was optional in all such cases, as with Psyx, I keep I just keep coming back to this fight, then I would be okay with it as is. And the reason why is because it's optional. 
I have said that a thousand times. Difficulty should be optional. I occasionally don't feel like trying. I mean, I mean, just to make that, I enjoy difficulty. I've said this before, and my my streamers and my videos have seen, uh, viewers have seen this. I enjoy difficulty. I enjoy challenge. I enjoy working hard. I mean, I do uh, challenge modes, and I've been doing that for years for for video games for forever. Stuff I come up with to make the game harder, right? And of course, speedrunning itself is in its own is 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 a, a specific form of challenge mode, right? I like that, but sometimes even I, someone who likes that. I'm just tired, or I just want to relax, or I'm just, you know, I just want to enjoy the story this time around. So having difficulty be optional is not just beneficial for people who don't want difficulty at all, it is also beneficial for someone who just wants to relax for a bit and enjoy the game without having to try too hard. So I like the fact that it is optional about half the time. So, like I said, I, I, I just wanted to lay that out there. I, I, overall, I'm not sure if I would call that a net positive or a net negative. I need to stop shaking the... <laughs> the desk here. There we go. Giant monitor. So, moving on. Um, uh, I was going to mention the... Okay. <laughs> One of the things I do very much like about this game is that, uh, especially with the introduction of the forms, the game does allow you to be cool on your own, regardless of reaction commands, regardless of cutscenes, uh, quite often, actually. In fact... Uh, it's almost odd because in most games, in cutscenes, you're better than you are in, well, I shouldn't say most, most modern games. In the cutscenes, you seem to be more competent than you are out of cutscenes. Uh, forgive me for pulling this example out here, but Mass Effect 2 is actually a really good example of this. There are several instances where, you, you're, you know, in a cutscene, someone will do something incredibly amazing, but of course you can't do that in the actual game, right? Uh, Jack is a great example of that. So is uh, the thief, uh, Kasumi. Both excellent examples of that. In Kingdom Hearts 2, it seems like the exact opposite. You are just ultra cool, destroy everything, pose at the end of it. You know, that kind of a thing. And in the cutscenes, you're competent, but nowhere near to the level of... I am become death, a destroyer of worlds, like you tend to play in the gameplay. It's very amusing to me. Uh, now, I know that's it's Kingdom Hearts 2 is not unique in that, but it's just interesting to see it in the contrast. Uh... It is also probably noteworthy that part of the reason for that, this is this is guessing, this is uh, just me, you know, spitballing, trying to figure this out, is partially because of the fact that you aren't necessarily that powerful in gameplay. You have to make yourself that powerful, not not just by leveling up, but by knowing how to equip what. This is the FF7 factor, as I like to call it, and as I mentioned back in my FF7 video, one of the things that made the game so easy was because you have so much customizability about what to do with your character. And indeed, Kingdom Hearts 2 really stepped up the customizability. And as I mentioned back then, and in FF5, and in FF3, and so forth and so on, the more customization you add to a game, generally the easier it's going to become, not because the game is easy, but because the player is stronger. But because they, the player will figure out ways to become much stronger than they should be for any given point in time of the game. That's one of the reasons I liked the whole uh, fight sequence I mentioned earlier that actually challenged me, but moving on. So, for example, one of the things I like most is that when you, <laughs> the, when you get the forms, they are completely unnecessary. You, when you get uh, Brave Form, I believe it's called, the one that, where you merge with Goofy, it, it doesn't add to anything. It doesn't make any fights easier. It's not required to beat anything. It's not like you have to blow a cooldown, basically, to use a MMO term. It's not like you have to be like, oh god, you know. Same thing with Wisdom Form, same thing with Master Form. None of those actually are required in order to defeat 
you know, whatever it is you're fighting against. By contrast, they're there simply because the game was like, here, here's something else you can do to be even cooler than you're already being, to be even more powerful, to enjoy the act of being, of making your own stuff happen, like I was just talking about earlier, the Devil May Cry 3 effect. Master Form is probably the most significant of that one because of the way you can literally uh, cast, it, it adds the ability to cast uh, off the global cooldown, again, to use a uh, MMO term. For those of you who don't know what that means, uh, no matter what you're doing, you can cast. Even if you're literally in the middle of a swing, or if you're in the middle of a combo, your combo will not be interrupted. Your action will not be interrupted. You will still cast, and it will just happen in the background while you're doing that. And there's all sorts of stuff you can do with that, obviously, if you even think about it for a moment. So, definite props on that front as well. Now, one of the other things that Kingdom Hearts 2 did, Kingdom Hearts 2 did, that Kingdom Hearts 1 uh, started was mini-games. Lots and lots of mini-games. Unlike Kingdom Hearts 1, pretty much all of these mini-games are a lot of fun. And even the ones that aren't fun are nevertheless not frustrating or irritating like several of the ones were in Kingdom Hearts 1. Ah, for example, the gummy ship stuff. I sort of kind of praised the, King the Kingdom Hearts 1 gummy ship stuff because it was at least interesting to have the pseudo-Star Fox thing going on. But Kingdom Hearts 2 took that and said, no, 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 no. And basically made a completely new game out of just the Star Fox gummy ship mechanic. I'm not even kidding. Uh, I know for a fact that myself and my friend Eric both basically just kept playing the game even after we'd beaten it uh, the first time to do more of the gummy missions, to finish up all the gummy missions and get S rank in all of them, and or triple S rank, or whatever, is the, whatever the top rank is, to fill out all the gummy stuff, because it was so much fun. They took everything that was positive about the gummy ship thing, the ability to customize your ship, the ability to get, uh, you know, purchase gummies and get gummies uh, uh, throughout the game, and within uh, the gummy missions, I might add, which is, all, which is very important, making it uh, so that you don't have to go off and do necessarily do other things in order to get things for this. That's always a good mechanic and made it so that the gameplay was smooth, quick, fun, and had awesome music, and had much better design for the levels, and had much more variety for the enemies, and it was actually much harder, too, but that's not saying much, because Kingdom Hearts 1, you, as I think I've demonstrated, you could literally just hold down shoot, and nothing else, just hold down the shoot button, and put the controller down, and win all but, I think, two of the uh, the missions of the gummy in that. And, and, and of course... As usual, it was basically optional. All you had to do was the initial gummy mission to connect from any given world to the next, and after that you never had to do it again. But if you wanted to go back and do it, you could. And, here's the best part about this kind of thing, this is something I've felt for a long time, personally. If you're going to do a minigame that is basically a game in its own right, like this, don't make the rewards from it affect the rest of the game. Because at that point, you're basically forcing the player to play two games in order to benefit the one. Now, I say that specifically because using a minigame, a real minigame, to benefit the game game makes perfect sense. But like I said, the, mini, the gummy thing in Kingdom Hearts 2 is effectively its own game. And it is very self-contained. And it's also worth noting that those initial missions I mentioned, the ones you have to do, are ridiculously easy compared to the harder ones. Nowhere is that more obvious than the very last one where you go to the world that never was. Uh, through the the battleship bravery, I think. No, that's the name of the song. Oh, whatever. Through that last mission, doing that nor on you know just to beat the game. Yeah, okay. 
when you do that on the harder difficulties, on the harder options, it's insane. <laughs> and it's incredible. And then there's actually a last boss. And there's actually a last, last boss. And it's like, yes. So that was a definite pop props. There are, of course, a few dozen other minigames throughout the game, uh, scattered throughout the worlds. And most of those either give you some kind of gameplay benefit or whatever, but all of those, again, were proper minigames. And the most important point I could point out, now this is only speaking from my personal experience, my opinion, and the people I've talked to, none of them were frustrating. Not, I'm not saying they weren't difficult, but none of them ever got frustrating. And that's always a very difficult sweet spot to admit. I'm, I, I'm, and I'm sure there's several people out there who did find them frustrating, because that's just, you know, different people, different lives. But that was a huge... Uh, positive for me, and when I went to do my 100% run of Kingdom Hearts 2 and managed to do it, I never actually got irritated the whole time. Well, okay, I did once, but we'll talk about that later. That wasn't frustrating, that was just... <laughs> Anyways, um... And again, uh, when you did the minigames, in general you would get some kind of gameplay benefits, often small. You'd get a, a few extra bits of crafting or whatever items. I'll talk about that in just a moment, too. Or you would get some other type of you know, equipment or armor that you could use. Or, of course, you know, there's the uh, Oracalcum Plus you could get from the one that we'll talk about in a moment. But overall, definite props there. But there's one, one thing I really want to talk about uh, that I'm going to have to put off, actually. I'm going to make a note of this, just so I don't forget. There, okay. <clears throat> so let's talk about <laughs> this. I'm talking about this here because this is this is not in the spoiler section, even though it's kind of lore and story relevant. You'll see why I don't mind talking about this in the gameplay section, you know, in the first part of the video. The Atlantica section of this game makes me want to stab myself 55 times in a row because... Just YouTube it sometime. YouTube Finny Fun. And for those of you who can't understand what I'm saying, F-I-N-N-Y space fun. From Kingdom Hearts 2. And you will understand the nightmarish horror that lurks within. Oh my god. Now I know some people have a higher tolerance for that kind of thing than I do. And I admit that as much as I absolutely loathe it, um, I mean it's not bad, bad, bad. Uh, I've talked before about the different types of bad. Uh, but this was just kind of, <sighs> you know, the whole time I'm like, is this actually what's happening here? For those of you who don't understand what I mean, allow me to elaborate. You go to Atlantica, one of the Disney worlds throughout the course of the game. The very first thing you say, or it's like the first of the first three things you say is, are there any heartless here to be dealt with? The immediate response is, no, there's nothing going on. We are all good out here. To which your response is, okay. But then they say, but wait, we need your help. Oh, no problem. Yes, I am I am Sora. I am the hero. I'm an idiot in this particular game, but that, that, we'll get to that later. The point is, I am ready to help you. What do you want my help with? We want you to sing. You, you want me to what? Sing! Okay. Um... Anything else I could do? Uh, maybe clean the gutters or, or whatever you've got underwater? Something? Anything but that, please. And you play this little uh, reactionary minigame where the score you get doesn't actually matter, by the way. You just have to successfully complete it. And and you have to... And what's hilarious is these unlock as you go throughout the game. So you have to come back. Like the first time you go there, you do the first song, Finny Fun. I just mentioned it. 
And then you get uh, something. I think it's when you get uh, wisdom form, or maybe it's master form. You, you, it, it tells you, come back when you get this ability later on in the game. And then you come back and you have to do the next song. And then it says, come back when you've upgraded Gravira. Um, and then you come back and then you do it again. And then you do the big one with Ursula, which actually was kind of cool. I'll admit that. I, I kind of like that one. Even though it was tacky as heck, uh, it was at least amusing. A lot of kitsch, kitsch value, I suppose I should say. And here's the most horrible part of all. You only get uh, one real reward for doing all of this. The whole Atlantica chain. And that is the best weapon in the game. Now, you don't get it directly. You get uh, y you have to have however many Oracalcum pluses. I forget how many. And you have to have mastered your synthesizing. I'll talk about crafting in a moment. You have to have mastered your synthesizing in order to reach the point where you can where you get an innate ability that reduces the cost of a thing because the actual materials required for the for the ultimate weapon the best weapon in the game are more than it's possible to get without cheating so you master everything it brings those costs down and there are exactly enough oracalcum pluses to get this and one of them you get from finishing atlantica <sighs> Now, whether this is a negative or a positive is kind of up to you. I personally would not have done this, if nothing else, because... Okay, Kingdom Hearts 2 really branches out quite a bit, all things considered. I'll talk about the ways and whys it does. This is a good example of that, though. It has an entire Disney world, an entire section of content, which is literally cutscenes and a uh, an extremely dumbed-down version of Guitar Hero. Extremely dumbed-down. We're talking like... <laughs> you know, basic level kind of a thing here. And that's fine, but making it required to get one of the, to get the best weapon in the game, I know some people would argue the Fenrir's better, but you get the point. To get the ultimate weapon is just... Uh, not something I would do personally. If I were in charge of designing personally, I probably would have had each section give certain rewards. Um, something at least moderately good, something worth going through this stuff for. But nothing I would consider required like that. Yes, I know, some people make the argument you don't have to get the best weapon in the game. But just go away. <laughs> it is also worth noting that I believe, although I am not 100% certain on this, that you do have to do the Atlantica in order to get the best ending in certain difficulties of the game. I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, I forget what the requirements are off the top of my head. And of course, if you're just 100% in the game anyways, you can do that. But I'll never argue that that's something that should be changed for. Crafting. If you remember, in Kingdom Hearts 1, there was crafting, and it was very mundane, very basic, and basically didn't involve much. Um, Kingdom Hearts 2, as per its idiom, as per everything it's been doing thus far, took crafting and exploded it everywhere, and made it into something interesting, fun, uh, much more in-depth, much more stuff you could actually do with it. The number of mats you needed or wanted uh, changed significantly. You could level up your Moogle, which would not only give them additional recipes, but additional abilities like that reduced the costing I mentioned earlier. Of course, that's the last one, but you get the point. There's stuff like that as you're going through the crafting system, and you can learn quite a few very valuable recipes, and that's the uh, other thing. It's always important. A lot of games, especially MMOs, tend to miss that key part. Crafting has to hit a very specific balance of useful but not required. And in my opinion, Kingdom Hearts 2 did a pretty good job of that. 
uh, it's almost impossible to hit that balance perfectly. Really, it is because if it's too if it's too useful, then it is too required, and if it's not useful enough, then there's no point in even doing it. So, the Kingdom Hearts two made it so that you were genuinely uh, benefited from having done. Uh, crafting, and you didn't really have to do it if you didn't want to, but you could also casually do it just from the stuff you would get just from playing the game. Now, if you wanted to do it for reals, you would have to go out and actually uh, figure out what dropped what, figure out how to get what, get some get certain recipes in order to level up your moogles, etc. But it was never actually grindy, at least not for me, uh, and that's always a very important point as well. Of course, Kingdom Hearts 2 also follows the two-off rule, which most uh, games ever have followed, so that worked very well. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I mean, if you've, uh, if you've got a zone here, and a zone here, and a zone here, if you were just go back and forth between these three zones, this middle zone will never respawn. And if you don't understand what I mean, you move two zones away, kill every stuff in here, and this zone has respawned. But you have not moved two zones away from this one, and you never do. So when you come back to here, this will have respawned. Or I'm sorry, this will actually have respawned. And then you can kill all the stuff here and go back. But if you do a four off, that actually works better because you're always going to be two zones away from all these zones. But anyways, the point being, that's very standard for games of this type and anything of this type. And so doing the four off uh, respawn thing works pretty well if you're just trying to go back and forth, especially given the rel relative speed with and ease with which you can level um, everything you do while you're grinding this. Uh, I shouldn't even call it grinding because it isn't. While you're While you're getting your materials and stuff. So crafting was a good thing. Um, oh gosh, uh, is there anything else gameplay-wise I want to talk about? <sighs> you know, I'm not sure there is. I do want to talk about one thing in brief. I mentioned this, uh, at least in my Kingdom, uh, Chain of Memories video. There is a thing within Kingdom Hearts series to change up the formula of the game each time. And whether or not this is a success or something that is a positive or a negative tends to depend on the individual, your opinions on it. But I know most people in general will agree that at least three of the games in the series had a, an overall positive change to the leveling system. That would be Kingdom Hearts 2, uh, I'm sorry, two games in the series, uh, Kingdom Hearts 2 and uh, Birth by Sleep. Now... I know that's not a universal opinion, but I know a lot of people think the way it was done, most especially within Recom and within 358, was not all that good. Um, but the reason I bring this up is Kingdom Hearts 2 is probably the game that was changed the least from the original formula of Kingdom Hearts 1, and I think that's also part of why it worked so well. Because they didn't change it so much as they upgraded it. And there is a difference. There's a difference between looking at a book and saying, okay, we must make it something completely new. You know, turning a, a, a mystery novel into a Harlequin romance, for example. Just right off the top of my head there. That's interesting. But um, an addendum to that... I'm going to have to... Hmm. Um, an addendum to that... The other alternative, what Kingdom Hearts 2 did, was to take a book and say, okay, let's add on to this. Let's change, you know, let's let's polish it up. Let's change the style, change the book cover, change this, maybe fill out a couple additional chapters, that kind of a thing, right? That's, uh, like I said, one of the two ways, in my opinion, to do a sequel properly. And that's what they did here. I mean, you'd still level, you still gain levels, you still gain exp, you still gain abilities per level. You still get uh, certain spells and abilities and whatnot just from doing uh, the quest. But one of the things they added was each boss in the game, uh, 
and which boss counts basically depends on the designers, but some bosses do and some bosses don't. Most bosses do. Virtually every major boss in the game will give you an additional ability and uh, will also give Sora, I'm sorry, Donald and Goofy an additional ability as well. And that's an additional way to add progression to the game by having it such that as you literally progress through the game, you gain new abilities regardless of whatever your level is, which was a nice little touch, I thought. Um, I probably shouldn't have my hand so close to the camera because I've got focus off. Is that really fuzzy up here? Eh, eh, whatever. It looks fine. Now, on top of that, one of the things they added in, uh, in addition to that was the whole... Uh, I'm trying to think how best to put this. They added they added a lot of convenience features. I'm just going to put it that way. They added quite a few convenience features, which really helped smooth the menu side of things. How much time you spend within the interface. I, I, I've heard this say, phrase before sl said more eloquently. So forgive me for the quote from uh, Yahtzee, but interface uh, 101: the less clicks, the better. Now that's been true for a long time, and it's one of the things that designers have been working towards, basically since the you know since the first video games in general, trying to make it so that the, you don't have to do so you have to do as few actions as possible without getting pointless within the interface in order to actually accomplish what you're trying to go for, and for example the ability to auto refill potions instead of having to do it manually just just one example or auto, auto refill any item for that matter, um, the ability to swap just like that, uh, what the AI is of, of, of Donald or Goofy or anything like that. All of that was streamlined a great deal in Kingdom Hearts 2, so that worked out very well. Now, I think that's basically everything I have to talk about with regards to the gameplay. So I suppose we're going to go ahead and do a chop-off line here. I should check the timestamp. God, I've been talking for a while. Okay. Let's talk about the game uh, from a story and lore and otherwise perspective. Uh, I'm As of this point, I'm not going to care about spoilers with regards to Kingdom Hearts 2, because none of the other series exists yet. So, you have been warned, you know, spoilers are now inbound, uh, possibly. I'm not going to intentionally be like, it was his sled, but I'm not going to be uh, holding myself back either. very first thing I want to talk about before I forget about it, as weird as this is going to sound, is the first thing I want to talk about is Winnie the Pooh. In Kingdom Hearts 1, the Winnie the Pooh sequences were enjoyable other than the gameplay, because the mini-games were irritating and frustrating. In Kingdom Hearts 2, the Winnie the Pooh sequences are absolutely phenomenal, because the gameplay sequences work and aren't frustrating or annoying, but more importantly, because it was a wonderfully beautiful way to examine the very thematic styles and, and approaches that the series as a whole has been taking up to this point in time. Now let me take a step back here. Within the Winnie the Pooh-verse, you find that Winnie the Pooh has forgotten Sora, and has forgotten all of his friends. His friends have not forgotten him. And I'm not going to go any further into detail, because I don't really think, feel like I need to, because I basically said all I need to in that sentence. And the way they examine each other, uh, the way they interact with each other, the... I think the way I really want to put this is, too often in a series, or a franchise, or a game, or a video, or a book, or a movie, or a television show, or a comic, they will take something that is a tragedy. It is a grief-stricken event. And as I've said before, the Kingdom Hearts series is a tragic series. It, it just is. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but there's really no arguing at this point. And they will take it 
in the darker, darkier and edgier route. I've talked about this before, and I say it like that uh, incorrectly on purpose to get across my disdain for it, rather than taking it. There is, as a, um, forgive me for repeating myself, but there is a way to do darker and edgier without doing darkier and edgier. And virtually everyone does darkier and edgier because they don't know how to, to rein themselves in to have show a degree of uh, or a modicum of of, bleh, of of moderation in how they do it. It is an extremely rare thing where you take something that is a tragic, horrible, grief-stricken event and take it lighter and softer to examine it. And that's exactly what the Winnie the Pooh thing does in Kingdom Hearts 2. I have heard many people complain, well, probably like eight people, complain that they did not like the Winnie the Pooh sequence in Kingdom Hearts 2. Not because the gameplay, because that was great. They loved that. They loved how that was improved. But they didn't like the fact that it felt like a retread of Kingdom Hearts 1's things. I disagreed with them. And I tried to explain why as best as I could, which I will now do for you. In Kingdom Hearts 2, while it is essentially just Winnie the Pooh again, and the rediscovery of their friendships with one, one with another, and the rediscovery of their memories one with another, what is literally happening is they are piecing a person back together. Someone who has been shattered, someone who has been sundered, emotionally, mentally, in terms of memory. Now, it's being expressed in an extremely light and soft-hearted manner, because, duh, it's Winnie the Pooh, I just mentioned this. But there is still something oddly heart-rending about the way that Piglet would cry out, you know, Oh, Pooh Bear, don't you remember me? Don't you remember Piglet? And Winnie the Pooh has no memory of Piglet, has no idea who he is or why. And it was a fascinating way to examine that theme because so much of the Kingdom Hearts series as a whole, especially from this point on, has to do with the slightly more metaphoric side of things rather than the literal. Uh, this is true within this game as well, most especially. The idea of being someone who is no longer remembered. The idea of being someone who is no longer who you used to be. The idea of being someone who doesn't even know who they are anymore or what they are. These are things that Kingdom Hearts 2 examines uh, extensively, I might add, and things that the series as a whole examines basically from this point on. Uh, actually has been doing so since Recom, if you want to get down to it, uh, with Repliku. So I, I have to give them props for the way that they did this, and I, and I definitely uh, really enjoyed these sequences, to, to my surprise, believe it or not. Um, so... I just wanted to get that right out of the way. There's another thing I want to get out of the way uh, pretty early on. Uh, among other things that I know some people simply do not like about Kingdom Hearts 2 is the intro. I have heard many people complain about the idea of a drawn-out intro, and I'm, I'm going to work under the presumption that most of the people who do so, who are doing so legitimately... Uh, l let me explain... I know a lot of people like, uh, an unfortunately large amount of people, like to complain about things because they like to complain about things. See about 50% of the, the forum goers of any game ever, <laughs> to give you a good example of this. So they complain about it because they like complaining, okay? But when you have something uh, that someone complains about because they have a genuine grievance about it, because they can actually uh, illustrate or enumerate it, that's different. That That's something I'm actually going to pay attention to. That's something I actually want to understand and work with. Now, near as I can tell, most people who have a, a grievance with the idea of an elongated intro do so because they feel like a, a game especially needs, needs to catch attention right off the bat and hold it. And there are many ways to do this, of course, without just, just starting with an action sequence. 
Although it is worth noting that uh, God of War 2 is probably one of those games that pulls off this particular type of storytelling. Amazingly, it starts off pretty much at the peak up here of overall adrenaline and, sh and, and storytelling and impact. And, and then it nosedives into the relative peace of the island once he gets there. And then it slowly builds throughout the rest of the story with the occasional peaks and dives, of course. Um... And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I personally tend to enjoy a well-done, and this is important, story that starts way off at the bottom here and slowly builds its way up. And usually a well-done intro sequence like this will do the exact opposite. It'll start low, build high, and then immediately plummet, just like the previous example did, and then slowly build throughout the rest of the story. I guess it's not the exact opposite, but it, it's, it's, it's actually a mirror is what I'm going with here. And... Just to name one example off the top of my head that isn't this game, Final Fantasy VII. The infamous Midgar sequence, which I enjoy. <laughs> Even to this day, I love going through the Midgar sequence. Because it it does so much in service of the characters, of the plot, of the story, of the setting, of everything. It's a shame it hasn't been translated properly, but, uh, you know, whatever. But you get the point, right? Kingdom Hearts 2 does, in my opinion, the same thing. It starts off very quietly, very basically. And it spoon-feeds you information. It, spoon it just barely tips out tidbits, hints of what's going on. And it slowly builds and builds and builds and builds until everything... It starts... Okay, let me just actually say this plainly. It starts with a young boy, uh, not that young, a teenager, teenage boy, who is on summer vacation with his friends. And they're hanging out around town and having fun and working about, you know, engaging in this local sports event, right? By the end, it's a teenage boy who is not entirely certain what is what or where or why and is desperately trying to make sense of everything he's encountered as people he's never known before and yet kind of has sort of interact with him in ways that make no sense because the place is also being attacked by strange alien-like creatures which have been destroying everything and also now there's this thing in his hand that looks like a key but he can swing it like a sword and... The contrast between the beginning and the end of the intro of Kingdom Hearts 2 is phenomenal and really emphasizes the point of where you're going, terminating probably at the high point with the scene where he uh, confronts Diz, or Diz uh, in front of Sora's module uh, in, in the uh, fake realm, of course, in the uh, replicated realm. And... Not on, and, and then the title scrolls. And that was a beautiful touch, by the way. And so more so the line. I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I don't know about the rest of the series. I don't know about, about the rest of the series. Eject, eject. But, uh, all I'm going to say is that a lot of Kingdom Hearts 2 gets a lot more poignant and a lot more heart-rending the more you know about what happens later in the series. <sighs> Moving on. The overall intro sequence not just didn't just serve as a tutorial for the gameplay, but it also served as a tutorial for the direction this storytelling would be taking. Kingdom Hearts 2 arguably ends on the highest point of the series, and yet it is arguably one of the most tragic games throughout the course of the story itself in the series. So many terrible things happen in this game, and the tone of that is all set right here at the beginning. So many lives are ruined, so many people lose who and what they are and why, and... Yeah. And all of that is established right here at the beginning with a young boy, a teenage boy, who just wanted to have his summer vacation with his friends. 
And I guess his summer vacation is over now. <laughs> Let's move forward a little bit, because there's not much else I can say about that without really going into spoilers. Like, oh my gosh! A text message. Um, so, let's go ahead and talk about one of the things I do like that they did within Kingdom Hearts 2. Let, let's leave this horrible tragedy behind. <laughs> oh, that's kind of hard to do in this game. In Kingdom Hearts 1, and to an extent in Chain of Memories, the Final Fantasy characters uh, were effectively cameos. They were effectively tossed in uh, characters, right? Now, I mention that not as a negative, but just to emphasize the way they were dealt with as a from a storytelling perspective. In Kingdom Hearts 2, they took a completely different approach to that. In Kingdom Hearts 2, the planet, Hollow Bastion, uh, also known as Radiant Garden, was effectively a Disney planet, not in terms of being Disney, but in the approach of how they dealt with it. All of the Disney worlds, for all intents and purposes, have been treated as their own mini-story, usually connected to the overall story, uh, at least when it's done properly. And in Kingdom Hearts 2, they're actually pretty good about that, except for Atlantica. But this story is connected to the overall plot, but it's connected in a way that is, you know, it's it's still self-contained for all intents and purposes. And that allows greater character focus, greater character development, uh, greater development with that internal story, and more impact from the overall arcs development scenes. Every time something happens that affects the arc within one of the Disney worlds, it has more impact. Now, Hollow Bastion kind of got a little bit more of that than the others because of how much uh, you learn there how much of the quote-unquote Wham! episodes happened uh, within Kingdom Hearts 2, within Hollow Bastion, uh, with good reason, I might add. But and that's also where we learned the one and only twist in Kingdom Hearts 2 as well. But, well, I guess, eh, yeah, that's the only twist. I'm going to just keep with that, it's the only twist. But as you're going through that, uh, let me just give you one example of what I'm talking about. Sephiroth is actually part of the story in Kingdom Hearts 2. Now you may say, well, what's the big deal about that? In Kingdom Hearts 1, Sephiroth was an optional boss. In Kingdom Hearts 1, Cloud was a part of the story for basically two scenes. In Kingdom Hearts 2, Cloud is a part of the story, and indeed a theme, uh, an examination of a theme, which I will get into more later when I start talking about Riku, uh, with regards to light and dark and the dichotomy and the interaction between the two. In Kingdom Hearts 1, Squall, or Leon, was there to be an exposition fairy, as the saying goes. In Kingdom Hearts 2, Squall was someone who was trying to work as hard as he could in order to take care of his town and try to rebuild, given the fact that there were also several enemies that were constantly uh, attacking them from all sides, and he wasn't even entirely certain or indeed aware of the threat that existed within Hollow Bastion, because of the whole Tron thing, we won't even get into that. And the point I'm trying to reach here with this whole uh, elaboration is the fact that Squall was a character in Kingdom Hearts 2, whereas in Kingdom Hearts 1, he didn't really have much characterization. You follow? And I like that. Uh, probably, uh, I've actually said this before, it took Kingdom Hearts to take Squall and turn him into a character I actually liked. <laughs> the same could be said of Dissidia, but I'm pretty sure Dissidia was later than Kingdom Hearts 2. In fact, I know it was. So, 
Definite props on that front. Uh, they also added Tifa. Didn't do much with her, but they did examine. They did actually use her as a, as a tool, and I guess that's kind of my point as well. If you're going to add a character like that, indeed, if you're going to add a character at all, they should serve some purpose. Use that character. Do something with them. Make them relevant. Even if it's only in a small way, do something with them. Don't just have them be there and be like, hey, look, it's blah. And I think Kingdom Hearts 2 did that very well. Let's go ahead and go over the Disney Worlds really quick. I actually pulled up a list here so I wouldn't forget any. Uh, Twilight Town doesn't really count as a Disney World. Um, although, I don't think there's anything I can really talk about Twilight Town other than uh, the obvious, which is the fact that it was a place put... Uh, it was kind of the equivalent of Traverse Town, but more so than that, it was the opposite of Traverse Town. And I can't really talk about that much, so we're just going to move on. Uh, Hollow Bastion I've already mentioned. Uh, good job on that. But I also have not mentioned the Tron place, which is called uh, Space Paranoids is the actual name of that world. Now, the Tron sections of the game, most people uh, think is basically one of the best, if not the best, Disney world within Kingdom Hearts 2. I believe Pax is of that opinion as well. I suppose I could ask him, like, right now. Oh, he's offline. Oh, he's getting lunch, that's why. Never mind, Pax gets no say on this. But the Tron world was not only incredibly relevant to the overall plot, but had most of the original voice actors come back. In fact, I think almost all of them came back. Uh, that's actually, I'm sorry, i got to take it aside to mention this real quick before I keep going to the Disney worlds. I mentioned earlier the money being on display. A lot of that came out in basically everything. One of the things Kingdom Hearts 2 did was they would vary up the engine either in slight or significant ways based on where you're at. And they would change the UE based on where you're at. And they actually brought in new... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, not new, many of the original voice actors for all the roles that were being played, and in several cases got really good voices. In fact, there's only like one voice actor off the top of my head I can think of that didn't do a good job across all of, of the Kingdom Hearts 2 section. And there's only one Disney World I didn't actually like, not counting Atlantica, uh, in all of Kingdom Hearts 2, which we'll get to last. But overall, very well done. Uh, definite, you know, showing the props there. But on top of that, for example, the actual outfit you have would change based on which world you're in. We saw just a tiny bit of that back in Kingdom Hearts 1 when you went to... Um, I guess I got the list right here. I'll just look. Halloween Town. But in this game, it's every single world, uh, with some exceptions. You look just a little bit different based on the world you're at. And as and I mentioned the engine changes. I'll just go and mention a couple here. Uh, Port Royal, a.k.a. the Pirates of the Caribbean planet. When you go there... It looks like a lot of the PS2 uh, pseudo-realistic games of the era did look, because they actually borrowed another engine in order to graft onto there. And Sora and Donald and Goofy still looked basically the same, with a couple of changes, of course, in texturing and whatnot. But the point is, it was them standing alongside relatively humanoid, relatively realistic-looking people, which was actually really well done. Uh, for example, to contrast that, when you go to... Uh, uh, does it have a name? Timeless River which I'll talk about in a moment, too. It completely... I don't even know how to put it. Just look up Kingdom Hearts 2 Timeless River, you'll understand. It, it, I'm not even just talking about the black and white. I'm not even just talking about the old-style uh, audio. I'm talking about the way that they actually changed the mesh and the animation of everything, including yourself. Now, keep in mind, in every single one of these cases, Tron is the other one that was significantly different, by the way. 
Tron and, and Timeless River are the two that are really big. Keep in mind that you can go back to these places after you're finished there. Why does that matter, Arshi and Kaya, you may ask? Because that means every single ability you can use in the entire game has to be rendered within that new engine, within that new style. Because you can use all of them there. You get the point? Every form, and all of its abilities, and every and the three of you, Sora, Donald, Goofy, and of course the local characters, all have to be rendered within that new engine, and with that new mesh, with that new style. It's not actually a new engine, but you get the point. That's a lot of work and a lot of effort for basically something that is effectively aesthetic. Definite props on that run. Now, let's get, let's continue forward. Tron. Original voice actors. Awesome. Uh, I, bl I know they got the uh, David Warner. I don't remember if they got John Sheridan. Uh, I mean, uh, the guy who played Tron. Yeah, okay, that's great. Sorry, I'm kind of looking this up real quick here. They did! They actually got a Bruce Boxleitner. I may be pronouncing that wrong, which is a shame, because I really like him, especially in Babylon 5. But yeah, they actually got him back for for Tron, to play Tron again. That's awesome! <laughs> Sorry. Um, moving on. So, the 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 Troll Tron sequence uh, was extremely well done in the way it was tied in to the story. This is something, as I mentioned, Kingdom Hearts 2 does very well. It uh, it ties in the Disney world with the overall plot. In Tron's case, the Tronverse is the computer uh, network that Ansem the Wise built in order to control everything throughout Radiant Garden. Now it has been corrupted by Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, and... Uh, Spoiler alert. <laughs> Different people there. That's that's the twist I mentioned earlier. That's the big twist. Um, well, I guess it's two twists kind of tied into one, which I guess makes sense when you think about it. But that's the that's the big twist. I'll just say it right there. Uh, but Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, completely changed it and altered it to the point where it was, you know, he created the MCP and all the, the horribly evil aspects of the Tron. And so you spend the whole time going through there not just to learn about everything you can about Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, and everything he did, but also to, you know, try and fix the system so that Holobastro see. So you see where I'm going with this. It wasn't just in service of the overall arc, it was also in service of the local story. Definite props. Uh, Halloween Town. Halloween Town was not in service of the story in terms of the arc, but it was in service of the story in terms of the setting, in terms of the uh, themes. You go to Halloween Town, and they added Christmas Town as a as an addendum, which is actually really cool, really well done uh, graphically speaking. I actually really liked going there, and uh, they added a dinky little story thing about bringing back uh, what's his name, Oogie Boogie, Oogie Boogie Man, and the overall point of that was the idea. And this is just barely mentioned, and nobody spends any time really dwelling on it, which is good. You, do, you don't have to treat your audience like they're stupid. They can pick up on the fact that you treated this circumstance as a situation where a construct, an inanimate object, was built and wanted a heart. This... <sighs> I can't actually talk about this without going further into the overall arcs of the setting, but this is the beginning of that theme, which was not even fully explored until Dream Drop Distance. This is something that has been an important aspect of the series and the arcs of the series as a whole that was introduced right here in Halloween Town and in Christmas Town in Kingdom Hearts 2. The idea that this thing that does not have a heart is desperately seeking it. And 
that's all I'm going to say about that. Pride Lands. Now, the Pride Lands is, is only tangentially connected uh, to the overall setting in the story, but it is in the sense that it, it again gets across the idea that no matter... That, uh, that darkness is not always obvious, is actually the way I want to phrase this. That it's not always some big, monstrous enemy that you can swing a sword at. The reason that the darkness spread and caused so much damage throughout the Pride Lands wasn't just because of Scar and his issues, but as we examine when we go there again, was because of the doubts, worries, and fears of Simba and his, his self-loathing and all that, that just Drew, drew the darkness in in a very quiet and subtle manner. If you understand where I'm going with that. Not the truck. So, I really liked the way that presented. And of course, obviously, the Pride Lands had its own story. Uh, as per usual, the first run through was basically going through the motions of the Lion King, abbreviated. And the second time through was saving it from itself, aka uh, from the darkness that was uh, prevalent through it that I just mentioned. Agrabah. Now, Agrabah, unfortunately, kind of followed the plot arc of uh, The Return of Jafar, which was a four-TV movie, which was terrible. I'm just going to say it flat. Um, this is speaking of someone who generally likes Disney movies. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of any uh, direct-to-TV or direct-to-video movie of Disney's that I've ever liked, but whatever, let's just ignore that. Point is, it was based off of that story, so that's the obvious uh, relevant cr in internal significance. Agrabah probably has, you could argue, has the least to do with the overall story, plot, arc, etc. But one of the interesting things about it is it's also the most subtle connection. We never actually learn who specifically is the one who is manipulating the situation in Agrabah. We're reasonably certain that it was someone from the organization, Organization 13. In fact, actually, I'm going to glance through this. Maybe it actually mentions in Final Mix and I just missed it. I don't know. Give me just a moment. I read fast. It does not. Hmm. So yeah, we never actually found out who was manipulating events there. The reason I say it's one of the most subtle connections is the idea here is something that is voiced later on, but never has a direct connection to these events. Xemnas, towards the end of the game, asks uh, of the party, why is it you know, he says a lot of things, actually, but the, the, the synopsis of his question is, why do you hate us when we are begrudged of both light and dark? And Riku's answer was, was the simple and obvious one, because you mess up our worlds. Agrabah's entire purpose was to show that even without, ha again, subtlety, even without having a big obvious villain right there, you know, <laughs> cackling maniacally and doing all that stuff, and generally changing things, the, what the organization was doing was making everything worse in the worlds that they were. Again, messing up the worlds, as he said it. Messing up their lives, purely to advance their own ends. Purely for their own purposes. And that is, admittedly, one of the reasons why the organization are the bad guys. And I say that, I will talk about the organization more in detail later, but the organization in general is actually very sympathetic, at least on the individual uh, characterization level, for the most part. And that's done so on purpose. 
But it is worth keeping in mind that these are the villains, and this is why they're the villains, in a nutshell. Not just because of Zemnus and all the stuff I can't talk about, because I, I, the rest of the series doesn't exist yet, but because of the fact that even though these people are lost and hurt and bruised and broken and not really people, and there's all those all other sympathetic, horrible problems with them, they decided with that situation to go ahead and say, screw everyone else, we're going to do what we need to do for us. And the rest can go burn. Now, obviously, this is not universal because the organization consists of several people, but you get the, you get the concept. And Agrabah really helps service that. Now, Port Royal. Ugh, I'm going to go and go over this now because it's, it's the next one on the list. Ugh, right after I scratch my ear. Port Royal is, in my opinion, the least... is my least favorite section of Kingdom Hearts 2, without question, without hesitation. It was nice to see what they did, uh, you know, with the other engine I already mentioned, but three really big problems here. Number one, the voice actor they got to imitate uh, Jack Sparrow was not good. And that's really all I can say about that. Uh, let's see, what was his name? James Arnold Taylor. I don't actually know who you are. Oh, he played Tidus. <laughs> no wonder I hate him! But no, seriously, completely ignoring that. He also apparently did uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi in the uh, Clone Wars cartoon and the Clone Wars uh, CGI movies as well. He's done quite a few stuff. And let me make this clear. I actually have nothing against the gentleman in specific, because he actually is not a bad voice actor, and I've heard him do other stuff. And again, even in the case of Tidus, he is not a bad voice actor. There, He's done a lot of stuff, my goodness. The problem is... I don't even know how to put this properly... He tries so hard to emulate um, Johnny Depp's particular way of speaking that it comes off as a pale imitation, if you understand what I mean. It's that aspect of trying too hard. I've talked about this before. And he's trying so hard to try and sound like jo uh, Johnny Depp that he f fails <laughs> and makes it sound worse by comparison. Honestly, I kind of wish he hadn't been doing an imitation, that he had just been doing his own thing. And in all honesty, I think that would have actually worked better. Just my opinion. But... You're probably like, well, what are you? Why are you making nitpicking about this? This isn't nitpicking. He's talk. He talks constantly. It's Jack Sparrow. This is a huge problem with the setting, with the, that particular world. You hear him talk constantly. It's constantly in your face. Hello, I'm Jack Sparrow. No. Moving on. Second thing I didn't like was something that I've always felt irritated by in the Kingdom Hearts series as a whole. Most of the time, when you go to a Disney World, uh, in Kingdom Hearts 2, there's always a first, well, almost always a first visit and a second visit, in some cases a third visit. But, you know, the first time is almost always rehashing the plot of the movie or whatever. And the second time is usually advancement of the specific, of the plot of Kingdom Hearts 2, dealing with the organization and whatnot, right? Uh, Port Royal is a good example of that. First time you go, they rehash Pirates of the Caribbean 1. Second time you go, uh, Luxord is there and you're dealing with him primarily. The real point I'm trying to make here is that most of the time when they do that rehashing of the initial plot, it at least has something to do with the overall plot. I just talked about this with regards to Tron, with regards to Halloween Town, with regards to Agrabah. All of these had something to do with the overall plot. Port Royal kind of does, but it feels so pathetic. I, I don't have a better way to put that. I apologize, but it's so pithy. It's like, okay, I've got a way to put this. The port... Uh, okay, let me get something out of the way. I like Pirates of the Caribbean, the movies. I really do. Uh, they're some of my favorite movies, okay? 
If you were to say Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, was the Eiffel Tower, then the port, the first visit to Port Royal is a crayon drawing of the Eiffel Tower. And I know that sounds really mean, but I don't really have a better way to put this, because I, I'm just going to be honest about this. That's how it feels. This is a pale, shallow, lacks any of the depth or the complexity or the design or the engineering or the thousands of thousands of things that went into making this this beautiful work of art. It's just a picture done in crayon on a piece of paper. It lacks any of the substance of the original. And every time I play through, play, replay through Kingdom Hearts 2, even more so than Atlantica, this, that's my least favorite section, is the first visit to Port Royal. The second visit I could at least be okay with, because it's, it's one of Luxord's only real uh, chances to shine, and it's, you know, again, relevant to the overall plot. But, ugh. So I just felt like mentioning that. Um, now, I do also want to point out that... Uh, as weird as this is going to sound, the Kingdom Hearts 2 second, I'm sorry, the Port Royal second visit, again, it does have something to do with the overall plot, but it's something I can't really talk about because it's basically a teaser hint, etc., of the way things work for the organization, and that will be examined more within 358 over two days. So, moving on. Atlantica, already talked about that. Let's just move on from that. Timeless River. It's it's a hard thing as to which is my favorite uh, Disney World in this one, Timeless River or Tronverse. They're both awesome. But probably the thing I like most about Timeless River is that not only does it have its own little uh, relevance to the overall plot with, with the whole Maleficent plot and uh, Pete having his second thoughts. And and uh, let, me, let me just make sure that I'm not uh, speaking ill of this. The way that they uh, flesh out Pete as a character is actually really well done in Timeless River, because he shows up really early on in the game. Uh, and then he's just kind of Pete over on the side. But this this section actually does start to flesh out his character a great deal, and actually, you know, definite props on that. But the real relevance of this section to the game as a whole, to the arc as a whole, is the... How do I put this? This is the first time the idea is advanced that what we, the players, are seeing is not what they, the characters, are seeing. The literal idea that the metaphysical affects the physical to such an extent that the, that perception, individual perception, matters a significant amount. This is, again, something that will be touched on a great deal in 358 with regards to you-know-who. But this is also something that is contained within Kingdom Hearts 2 itself. There is a long-standing theory, which I believe in firmly, uh, that towards the end of the game, when all the members of the organization are referring to Sora as Roxas, it's because they are seeing Roxas, because they do actually perceive him there. And the only one who really seems to think otherwise is Zigbar. And I can't talk about why. I just keep saying that this review. Um, <laughs> but the overall point I'm trying to get across here is the idea that here in real life, if you see, you know, perception obviously does affect things. But perception is usually an internalized thing, a mental thing, right? Uh, tonality, mood, uh, subtleties, nuances. But if I see a red rose, you also see a red rose, right? I mean, the nerve uh, is are different, but we're not even getting into that. My point is it's still the same visual thing, right? Within the Kingdom Hearts verse, that is not true at all. I may see a red rose, but for whatever reason, that rose may appear to be a black rose or a blue rose or a dandelion to you. 
literally visually appearing to be a different thing to you. And timeless rivers, when they first approach that idea, this is the same thing that they, I mentioned within Agrabah and within the Halloween Town thing. Tiny little things that advance an overall theme that is very important to the overall arc of the Kingdom Hearts series, but it's done in such a quiet way that you might not even notice if you're not thinking about it. I'm going to kind of blaze through the rest of these here, because only a couple here. Uh, Olympus, uh, awesome. It was nice to see the underworld, the way the underworld works, the whole mechanic of you don't have uh, your all your abilities and you can't form and all that stuff in the underworld makes a lot of sense. Uh, it, again, that was an excellent example of gameplay and story integration. And also part of, partially explains why we would be afraid of Hades at all, uh, even if, you know... Well... Even if, uh, you know, we've already beaten him several times, actually, at this point. It was a nice way to flesh out the character. And, of course, I just have to say, James Woods is always awesome, uh, as Hades uh, in general as well. But he, there's a reason he's been in so many of the Kingdom Hearts series, because it's awesome, and it's an awesome role, and he's awesome in it. Uh, I also want to mention that the Hades, uh, the Olympus Coliseum has probably one of the most awesome moments in the entire series. I think several people would agree with me on this one. Orin comes out when Hades is like, I'm going to summon the biggest, baddest, most powerful, horrifyingly terrible thing of, of in all of the underworld. And he summons a horse, Oron. <laughs> and for those of you who can't understand what I'm saying, I'm referring to Oron from Final Fantasy X. Same voice actor, by the way. He comes out, and he is awesome. He is badass. The very first thing he does is just completely talks all over Hades and is like, yeah, whatever. This is my story. <laughs> and you're not a part of it. And he, it's wonderful, wonderful the way they did it. And it's probably the only uh, instance where I actively try to use the uh, the the temporary character. This has been a concept in Kingdom Hearts 1 as well. The temporary character uh, in addition, in, instead of you know Donald and Goofy, because it's Oren, because he's awesome, because he's actually really strong in combat, and because he has awesome dialogue. So, so that worked really well. But on top of that, uh, the the integration of uh, there was a lot of hinting done within the Olympus and in the underworld uh, world with regards to what was going on with with Sora at the time, uh, as as we turn and uh, eventually learn about how Sora's merging with Roxas didn't actually go properly. Is really I'm just going to go and say it flat out. Uh, they weren't fully reintegrated, and so they're just kind of like this right now. And Demix was sent specifically to try and, as he put it, you know, reawaken re his true disposition, which probably meant uh, bring Roxas out of Sora if possible. But at the same time, uh, Zemnis also knew that he would simply have to combat Sora in order to keep Sora on his path, because Sora is so manipulatable and so stupid in Kingdom Hearts 2 that simply putting an obstacle in his path will make him, uh, you know, will make that work like that. So, hey, sure. But regardless, that's the advancement of the overall plot there. And then, of course, we've got the Land of the Dragons, which I shouldn't even have to go into. Uh, but the the examination of Riku and what's been happening with him there was certainly fascinating. And the idea that he's still running around doing his thing and trying to uh, do what he can. But also the idea that Riku is in the organization code is something that isn't uh, really examined until later, but, you know, nevertheless, really well done. And finally, Beast's Castle, which was really well done. I'm, I'm just going to skip over most of these, because most of these are too obvious for me to really uh, spend time on. So, <sighs> let us talk about the organization, and nobody's in particular. very first thing I want to talk about is something I alluded to previously. Everything that the Heartless use... Excuse me. Everything that the Heartless use and do 
is very organic. It is very natural looking. It is very, you know, uh, from nature. It, it is morphic and, and pulsating and just kind of thrown together like it was almost casually done. But it's run very much on purpose on part of the developers because they're the heartless. They are, the com they are basically the heart consumed by darkness. And as such, they are instinct. They are uh, pure emotion without any thought or logic or memory to guide it, right? Uh, the only exception to date being uh, Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness. The nobodies, by complete contrast, are basically the intellect, the memories, and the personality left intact with, with no heart, no emotion, no anything like that. So everything that the nobodies are and show is much more artificial looking. There's a reason they are all white, and it's not just the white and black thing. They are all white. They are all plain. There is no aesthetic sense to them. They simply are, uh, and they have these... They almost have this, like gummy, <laughs> I hate to say it like that, uh, composition. You know, they bend, they twist, they, they morph around because they aren't actually physical, they just think they should be. And so their, their, their focus determines their reality, basically. And of course, they are all being told that by the, the nobodies who still have all of their memories, still have all of their, uh, their faculties together. The strong nobodies, aka what I usually refer to as the unknowns, the members of the organization. And of course, one other, and these uh, individuals are, and, and everything that you see this everywhere. I just gotta don't comment on this really quick. You know, the world that never was is very artificial. It's a city with a with a very stark castle that looks like it's made out of some kind of steel, etc., etc., etc. And um, you know, the the ships they use in in the 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 gummy verse uh, in little Star Fox sections, you know, very artificial, very uh, frank looking, etc., etc. You get the general concept I'm trying to get across here. One of the other interesting ideas is one that is basically uh, barely touched on, but it is hinted at in the tiniest little way. The lesser nobodies only speak once in the entire game. Damn it, Gary. <laughs> and it is to speak to Roxas, uh, to say... Uh, we have come for you, my liege, is actually the exact quote. I remember it because it was rather significant for theorycrafting at the time. The, the idea that the nobodies can speak is indicative of the nightmarish horror that is being examined within the nobodies. Try to imagine uh, becoming a heartless, okay? For all intents and purposes... It would probably be something like becoming a zombie, and and I, I don't mean this to to really to, to to get into that. I don't want to get into this whole topic, but my overall point is, you don't actually have any awareness of becoming a zombie. You're a zombie now. Congrats. So, you follow, right? You're a heartless now, and that's it. That's the end. You are now a heartless. Now imagine trying becoming a nobody, as a result of this whole thing. Wow, I'm actually bleeding. <laughs> um. Imagine becoming a nobody as a result of this. You still have your personality, you still have your mind, you still have your memories. You still understand what the concept of horror is. And even though you can't necessarily feel it, you are constantly bombarded by the reality of the fact that you are now an abomination for all intents and purposes. And the mere fact that they allowed a nobody to speak really emphasizes that point, that the nobodies are... <sighs> in a horrible, terrible situation. And 
That's uh, I mentioned earlier that the organization as a whole and the nobodies in specific are very sympathetic. This is the first reason why. To simply be a nobody is in its own way a form of horror. And terrifying uh, to think about. I guess I can close this now because I don't actually need it. To it's, and then then let, let's add on to that the second part. Um, okay, <laughs> I, I I'm not going to talk about the rest of the series as a whole, but we are going to uh, we are going to mention something. All of the organization members of Nobody, of the Nobodies, of, of, of Organization 13, all the unknowns, are people who are intelligent and, and thoughtful and have ambitions and have dreams and have all that fun stuff. They just don't have emotions, or at least so we're told. Uh, it seems questionable even within Kingdom Hearts 2. And to be perfectly blunt, I didn't buy that even when Kingdom Hearts 2 was the only game out. That's all I'm going to say. But um, regardless... Every single time that we interact with them, we get across the impression that these people... How do I put this? They... I talked before about the plight of Namine within Oblivion Castle. And the concept that Given her specific circumstances, her choices and her situation to, to aid the bad guys, to put it simply, was a lot more understandable. Given the way we see recruitment happening within the organization, within Kingdom Hearts 2, and given the way that the organization works, and given the manipulative capacities of Xemnas, who has demonstrated as basically not caring about any of its members other than himself, and given everything I've talked about, about how horrible it would be to be a nobody, and given what we know about Roxas when he was first found, admittedly it emphasized within 358 when we see how he is when he's first found, you get the impression that it's hard to... It's hard to... to blame them. I guess is the way I'm going to put that, at least from my perspective. It's difficult to blame someone who is in such a truly horrible circumstance for agreeing to go ahead and being a part of... Oh, for God's sake, Gary. <laughs> to, for, for agreeing to be a part of the organization, for agreeing to be part of something that is essentially a bad guy thing, for essentially, you know, something that they probably know on some level or another is a negative. Uh, again, this is advanced in 358, but the point I'm trying to get across here is that these people are knowingly and willingly committing things that they themselves probably disagree with because they ultimately feel like they don't really have a choice. I'm not... I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to paint them as anything but the bad guys, let's make that clear. But I am trying to emphasize that one of the things that was done most powerfully in Kingdom Hearts 2 was they fleshed out the motivations and concepts and personalities and backstories and in, in ideas behind the members of the villains, the organization members. This is one of the reasons they have remained so popular throughout the entire run of the franchise. This is one of the reasons that they are still one of the most popular characters within the within the run of the series. There is still 
there is a reason why, even to this day, several people, you know, if they ask, well, who's your favorite character in Kingdom Hearts? At least in the top three, one of the members is going to be there. Probably Axel, let's be honest with ourselves. But you get the point. And there's a reason that they're still in the franchise. Forgive me for going ahead and spoiling a little thing, but the organization members still have an impact past Kingdom Hearts 2. And it's and it's because of this this depth, this this added layers that they add to these characters. Now, obviously, some get less than others. That's always true. Luxord is a good example of someone who unfortunately receives very little uh, characterization. And another good example of that would be uh, Demix, I would say. And... Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to stop there. But the overall point here is I've been asked before, you know, why is it that these characters have such an impact on the story? Why is it these characters are so important and so impacting? And I was like, well... <laughs> and, I, and I explained what I just explained to you. There is one other uh, tidbit of that as well. You have to also consider the fact that from an in-setting perspective, what the organization members are basically uniquely allows them to manip manipulate and affect their surroundings on an unprecedented scale. Simply the ability to teleport at will between worlds by itself is a huge deal within a setting like Kingdom Hearts. Hell, that's a, that's a huge deal in virtually any setting. Their capacity to be immune to most of the effects of darkness, their ability to command both Heartless and the Lesser Nobodies, their uh, capacity to uh, basically in uh, force, or at least uh, to some extent or another, because Xemnas, for example, can literally rip someone's heart out and create a heartless and a nobody. But the others have the ability to subtly manipulate and influence them to do so, like Zaldin did, for example, with uh, Beast, in order to create a heartless or a nobody. These capacities basically enable them to treat the world like it's their own. Uh, and by the world, I mean the setting. They could do whatever they fi they feel like. And in fact, to be a little bit blunt, if it was not for the for sheer chance and the uh, addition of Roxas to Sora, they probably would have succeeded in their overall plan. Food for thought on that work. So even from an insetting perspective, the organization members being so impacting and having such a lasting effect within the series makes a great deal of sense. It's like saying Lavos has a great deal of impact on the Chrono Trigger setting. Yeah! <laughs> if you'll forgive me for being blunt. Now, I feel like I've rambled on for quite a while. I don't actually have too much else I can talk about within the confines of the setting specifically. Within the confines of Kingdom Hearts 2, I mean, excuse me. I do want to mention a couple things. Number one... We've already seen Axel uh, be fleshed out within Recom. Here in Kingdom Hearts 2, we see him fleshed out even more. He becomes much more of a character. And his actions, in many cases, appear to be very irrational. And that's very unusual for a people who basically are only ration, you know, who, who basically only have their thought and logic and memory to guide them. But... It's all explained within Kingdom Hearts 2. It, it is elaborated on in further games. But King, in Kingdom Hearts 2, within Kingdom Hearts 2, we find out that Axel says he felt like he still had a heart. He felt like he still felt when he was around Roxas and that Sora had the same effect on him. And there's obvious reasons and, and explanations for that I'm not going to go into, but within Kingdom Hearts 2, we, that simple revelation tells us all we need to know about why he was acting so irrationally because he did not know how to process what he was feeling, or indeed probably did not even know what he was feeling, and simply was reacting to what was happening around him as best as he was able. 
It is also worth noting that Axel is very smart. This is something he demonstrated back in Chain of Memories as well, and will continue to demonstrate in the future. But Axel very much has a brain and knows how to use it. And so he has uh, a great deal of impact upon a lot of what's going on and is one of the major characters of the story specifically because, for the most part, he knows what he's doing. But then by the same token, you have to also keep in mind the fact that the way he knows what he's doing... He also doesn't know how he's doing it or why he's doing it in some cases, which is one of the reasons his plans basically fall apart within two. Um, Syx is probably one of the most interesting characters to me. There's a line he said that I can't really elaborate on too much right now, but he has a line that says he can drop this charade, or the charade if you prefer, when he's talking to Zemnus towards the end of the game. That line has been the source, that one line has been the source of a huge amount of theory crafting that I've seen myself. Based off of what we see in future games, I think it is now clear what he meant. But ultimately, even at the time, that line could have meant three or four different things easily. Whether or not he meant the charade of requiring uh, the Keyblade wielder and having to deal with him, whether or not he meant the charade of pretending he didn't have emotions, whether or not he meant the charade of... Uh, you know, manipulating the team in general or dealing with the Heartless or anything like that. There's a lot of different things it could have meant. I'm not going to say anything more about that. I just felt like pointing it out that it's one of those hints about the character. And we see in Sayek someone who is clearly fascinated by the idea of having a heart, even though he himself professes most powerfully of all the nobodies, of all the unknowns, I should say, that uh, he does not have one. We'll get into that more later. <sighs> And then there's Zigbar. Zigbar was introduced in Kingdom Hearts 2. All I'm going to say about him is he's still in the series as of the most recent game. And there's a reason for that. But even within Kingdom Hearts 2, we see someone who, despite his approach as the attitude, he has what is described as a surfer accent. And he appears very casual in his approach to dealing with the party. But even within what we see, and again, most especially within Final Mix, which is one of the last things I'm going to talk about, we see someone who is what I like to call truly smart. That is to say, someone who understands the power of anonymity. The most powerful way to deal with situations, to manipulate those around you, is to pretend and, and to, to present an atmosphere or a personage of being unimportant, of trying to show that you are incompetent or irrelevant or otherwise not something they need to pay attention to. Uh... I could mention a movie that came out this year with regards to this, but I don't want to spoil anything. But anybody who knows what I'm talking about probably already knows what I'm talking about. But it is something that is something that villains, or even characters in general, within fiction almost never do. But every time they do, uh, when they do it properly, I should say, it really emphasizes why that specific character is probably one of the most dangerous characters within that setting. And I agree that Zigbar is arguably the most dangerous character within the Kingdom Hearts setting. Because he understands how powerful it is to be underestimated by everyone. And he demonstrates on many occasions that he is an absolute genius when it comes to many different subjects and fields. And he knows what he's doing. And I'm very curious to see how that character arc is going to finish. That's all I'm going to say on that. Ah, now, let's talk about Final Mix. As you may not know, or you may be aware, Kingdom Hearts 2 Final Mix is flipping incredible. It is exactly what a quote-unquote Final Mix should be. 
Uh, they added tons of new dialogue, story, character development. Very, very plot-relevant stuff, I might add. The things I just mentioned with regards to Zigbar, we get most of that from the final mix cutscenes. Uh, it added tons of new content with regards to stuff you can actually do. Added some incredibly awesome boss fights with all the organization members you didn't get to fight into. Uh, you know, all the ones who died back in Chain of Memories. Uh, you know, Vexen and Lexius and so forth and so on. Marlugia. I'll, I'll figure out how to pronounce his name someday. And it added a, a whole layer, additional layer to the way crafting worked. Added uh, more mini games and side quests. All sorts of fun stuff, right? That all sounds awesome, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great if that was released somewhere instead of just in Japan? I've often mentioned that this is the second biggest flaw of the Kingdom Hearts series, right after the being on every uh, console in the universe problem. And that is the fact that the final mixes are not only awesome, but don't come out over here. But wait, Arshay and Gaia, I hear you say, Kingdom Hearts 1's final mix is coming out here. Yeah the worst of all the final mixes that ever was done, that added the least, that is being... <laughs> that didn't fix anything. It's not actually a remake. It's not actually... A, it's, it's, it is a port. It is a port of Kingdom Hearts 1's final mix. It's just been HD touched up. It's one of those hardly different things. I've talked about this before. It's like the FF10 thing. It's a hardly different port. They don't get credit for that. Not really. If they release all the final mixes, okay then they'll get a little bit of credit. But it has been a source of continuing frustration for many fans, myself included, that we get to go to sites of, of, of kind uh, individuals within Japan who understand enough Japanese and English in order to translate this stuff so we could at least understand some of the plot we're missing. <laughs> Never uh, Relevant plot, mind you. I mean, in Kingdom Hearts 1's final mix, you fight Xemnas. <laughs> you fight Xemnas, who is there to see you immediately after having recruited Roxas. That is something that is integral to the storyline. We just didn't get it, because it was in the final mix. And there's several scenes just like that in 2. In fact, arguably the single most heartrending scene in the entire game of Kingdom Hearts 2 happens in the final mix. And that is the scene where uh, basically Dream Axel and Dream Roxas get to say goodbye. That's all I'm going to say about that one. But whatever. Um... There's one thing I want to mention uh, pretty much last, and that is the fact that Kingdom Hearts 2 is almost amusing in its finale, because Kingdom Hearts 2, as I've said, is a very tragic game, is a very, uh, I'm not going to go so far as to say depressing, but it is a downer, all things considered, uh, in a good way, <laughs> as weird as that sounds. But of all the games in the series, Kingdom Hearts 2 arguably ends on the highest note. I, I know I've said this about Kingdom Hearts 1 as well. The two are kind of tied, in my opinion. But at the end of Kingdom Hearts 2, there is a notable attempt to make it end on a higher note, despite the events that happened, despite Naminé basically ceasing to exist, despite Roxas basically ceasing to exist, despite the fact, uh, you know, despite all that has happened, despite all the death, despite all the loss, despite all the destruction, as Sora and Riku sit within the Meridian, of darkness, uh, on the, uh, or no, the Dark Meridian, I'm just kidding, that's what's called, the, uh, sit within the Dark Meridian, basically welcoming their fate to slowly be absorbed into and become a part of the darkness, 
there is a feeling of acceptance in their in their attitude and their approach and there is a sense of hope when they find the door to light there and use it to get back to destiny islands and when they reunite with their friends and it's ironic because if you're listening to the music it's actually a very somber uh, low-key sad song that's playing despite the overall jubilation of the scene and that is further emphasized when Sora looks at Kairi and Roxas looks at Namine, if you think about it. And what that exactly means, we're still not 100% sure about. Uh, there's a lot of theories, uh, and they've been fleshed out, most especially by uh, Dream Drop Distance, but I suppose we'll find out the full details of that in Kingdom Hearts 3, at least I hope so. Ultimately, I guess I don't really have anything else to add. I could keep talking about a lot of detailed things. I could keep going for a long time. There's a lot to talk about this game. But ultimately, ultimately, it's themes of memory, of you know, uh, nurture versus nature, of loss, of regret, of being not forced so much as in a position where you feel helpless and you continue forward on the path you have set before you or has been set before you because you feel like there's no other thing you could do. And if and when I say that, you may be thinking I'm just talking about the organization members, but if you examine Sora, it is very obvious that he is literally just walking on the path that has been laid before him because he feels like there is no other choice. You know what, I actually want to finish one thing. I kind of didn't want to talk about this because most of what's going on with Sora has to do with the other games in the series. But let's go and talk about Sora really quick because I know some people are wondering why I haven't yet. I hate Sora in Kingdom Hearts 2. He's an idiot, he is a judgmental prick, and he is a bastard in Kingdom Hearts 2. I do not speak facetiously. Well, I guess I do because he's not literally a bastard, but you get the point, right? He is a mutton, okay? He... <laughs> so much of Kingdom Hearts 2 happens because Sora, oh, virtually all of it, happens and, and unfolds the way it does because Sora is either stupid and therefore advancing the plots of the villains because he's an idiot, or easily manipulatable because he's, he's such a, a hothead. And so many actions in Kingdom Hearts 2 basically are a tragedy because of Sora. I've talked before within other games, with other settings, the idea, the concept of being um, the idea that you are someone who is not necessarily a good person, but you have had horrible things happen to you, and the way that other people deal with and react to you change has a tendency to change how you are and how you react to them, right? Try to imagine for a moment how Kingdom Hearts 2 and how the series as a whole would have unfolded if Sora had taken care of and tried to help the members of the organization that he met, rather than treating them like they were less than nothing. He literally treats them so horribly, with such ire, with such wrath, with such disdain, he insults them. He is disgusted by them. He shows this constantly through his actions, through his words, through his tonality. He spits upon them. And 
it is no wonder that things happen the way they do as a result, not just to that, but he does that to basically everyone who is not a bona fide good guy. The way he reacts with Demix in particular uh, is an excellent example of that. Pardon me, just one second. Because Demix of all the organization members is the one who is probably least likely to be on board with the idea, but when Sora treats him so horribly and just and yells at him and tells him he's he's done nothing and he doesn't deserve to pretend like he's feeling, Demix's response is to get angry. Do think about what I just said for a moment. The nobody's response is to get angry and to get violently enraged and to come at you full force because he was pissed that Sora would dare treat him like that, that Sora would be like that with regards to him. Try to think about that for a moment. But Sora, on top of all this, it has been asked many times, why is Sora such an idiot? I will talk about this more in detail when I do the stream, because I can discuss it with, with carte blanche on spoilers. But suffice it to say, as a result of the events of 358, Recom, and uh, to an extent, uh, the beginning of Kingdom Hearts 2, it would be best to describe Sora as not quite Sora at the moment. He's... To put it as bluntly as I can, he is just as broken internally and emotionally and mentally as the nobodies he is he is railing against, which is perhaps ironic when you think about it. He just doesn't he isn't aware of it, and it's very probable that basically nobody is aware of it. Uh, no pun intended. That nobody is aware of just how screwed up Sora is, and is to this day, I might add. But it is also worth noting that Sora, with the massive amount of darkness that is within him. I mean, he actually ha they actually have that a gameplay mechanic this time around. He actually has the the shadow form, which is doom on several bosses. With the massive amount of darkness he has within him, unlike Riku, who has basically mastered of great deal of his darkness, and even though he still shows shame with regards to it, he himself has not been corrupted by it, and this is shown throughout Kingdom Hearts two. But unlike Riku, Sora has not mastered his darkness. Sora has no idea how to deal with it. But Sora also has no idea how to deal with the light that is within him. It is all artificially grafted. And he is a jigsaw puzzle that has been shoved into a box without any intent of actually building it. So it is no wonder that Sora reacts the way he does. As aggravating as it is, it makes perfect sense, especially when considering 358 days, which really highlights all the problems with it. Like I said, I won't go into it. So I wanted to talk about that in brief, because... Well, there's one other thing that, that just kind of mystifies me. It is it is related to the above problem, but Sora does act like a complete idiot throughout the game. It takes people like Goofy. Of course, I've also said Goofy is one of the smartest people in the, in the series, and that's not a joke. He tends to pick up on things a lot more than the others do. But it takes people, other people really hammering the point in for Sora to actually figure things out. Things that we, the viewers, figured out much earlier on. The, last, the very last point I want to end on here is that this is not being done because the game is treating us, the viewers, like we're idiots. It is emphasizing just how wrong Sora is right now. And we see this throughout the entire game. And this is something that isn't really fully developed until further games within the series. But they spent this entire game emphasizing just how messed up Sora was to really emphasize the point of... Well, 
of what's going to happen in the future. Now, I think I'm going to finally stop. My throat really hurts. <laughs> um, hopefully you all have enjoyed. If anyone has any questions, feel free to ask, and I'll talk to you guys later.